You are listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a space for intellectual engagement, interdisciplinary collaboration, and a vibrant graduate community at James Madison University. Due to the pandemic, this year's podcasts have been conducted remotely over video communication software. Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center. I'm Megan, and today I'm sitting down with Dr. Brooks Hefner and Dr. Egbert Timkey, directors of the recent project Circulating American Magazines, a digital database of information on U.S. periodical history collected from the Audit Bureau of Circulations, complete with digital tools and visualizations. You can find a link to the project on our show notes page. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, can you guys start us off with a little information about the project? So part of this project uh, is really inspired by uh, questions about magazine circulation, which has always been a really difficult uh, question to answer because uh, it, magazine editors were uh, notoriously um, in, inaccurate in describing their own circulation figures, whether they were trying to, to sort of puff them up or um, emphasize certain kinds of identities. Uh, and there's never really been a reliable um, set of figures that documented magazine circulation uh, available to scholars. Uh, and both Ed and I have been uh, working independently with information from a group called the Audit Bureau of Circulations uh, which produced volumes for advertisers. And these volumes contained a wealth of information about individual magazine issue circulation and also regional circulation. And we felt that this would be a great resource for scholars to uh, of periodical history to use um, in, uh, in any kind of research trying to understand where magazines circulated, who was reading them, um, and how many people were, were really reading them. And I'd like to add that, um, you know, as magazines have evolved over time, some of them still exist, some of them have folded. And so uh, company records are very difficult to find for magazines. And so how do we know who, um, you know, who might have read magazines, where they read them, how much? Um, that information, you know, might have been found in company archives, but without that, um, Thankfully, we have the, uh, the uh, Audit Bureau of Circulations data. Can you tell us a little bit more about the research process? Ed, why don't you take this one? Sure. Yeah, so I think um, serendipity would be a way to start off the, um, the way it all started. So uh, Brooks and I, we were both at a very pivotal meeting in New York about five years ago called the City of Print. Um, and this was a, a meeting of periodical scholars from many different disciplines. We were all meeting in New York City. Um, and through that meeting, actually about a year later after the meeting, Brooks and I realized that we both um, were, were working on circulation. And so he had dug up some uh, Audit Bureau of Circulation data. I had some of that information, but I was working mainly in a comparable Audit Bureau um, in France. Um, and then we just both started talking via Skype because at that point I was on the West Coast, um, Brooks was on the East Coast, and he was putting together a National Endowment for the Humanities uh, Digital um, um, Humanities Advancement Grant. And it, uh, basically through our mutual discovery, we, we started to you know, realize that we're both interested in this and then 
sharing our data. And then from there, we just started to have regular meetings and figuring out how could we collect this information and then make it available to others. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of lead time and a lot of thinking about that um, and also diving into data collection. What would you say was the biggest challenge in getting this project going? There were a lot of challenges along the way and uh, we often felt like we were sort of assembling the plane while we were flying it. It's very much, uh, there there really were kind of three elements to this. And one was um, collection uh, of information. One was um, the the, uh, actual data entry, which was a huge component. Um, And then the third project was, or the third sort of element of the project was really about um, how do we format it and get it ready for visualization. Um, and for much of this, the life of this project, which really took about three years um, to launch, we were kind of doing all three simultaneously um, because the data we were looking for wasn't really held completely in any one um, public archive. The Library of Congress had volumes. Um, the Center for Research Libraries, which is based in Chicago, had volumes. And then there were a few stray volumes in uh, Atlanta, in New York, and also in another location in Chicago. And so we made a lot of archival trips. We took a lot of photos. And we also had to develop um, pretty elaborate uh, processes for um, getting data entered, which was um, something that we, we had students do, which was, a really, um, which was a really great experience, but it was also a really complex one. I don't know if, Ed, you want to add to that. Yeah, I think um, we used, the, the cloud was our friend. Cloud, the cloud, <laughs> so using, we used uh, Google Drive um, as a way to collaborate because, again, I was on the West Coast. Um, Brooks was on the East Coast, and sometimes he and I would be in archives either at the same time or at different times. And so um, because when, when you're talking in the end, we have, what is it, about, we have over 225 titles. Um, spanning from, you know, not all the magazines span from 1919 to 1972, but you can imagine the number of reports that we would need, you know, if you're, if you're looking over well over, you know, 50 years. And um, so we really needed a system to um, keep ourselves on the same page. So this is coming up with a common naming system. And again, as Brooks said, we were building the plane while flying it, you know, we kind of started things out and then we refined it. And then we're working with, you know, on, on, um, at James Madison University, and then also where I was at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, our student workers were doing great, but we also had to make sure that we trained them to make sure that, um, you know, we were all on the same page. And so I think um, the, the cloud was really what, what helped us collaborate across, across a distance and then also eventually be able to streamline that plane that we were building. And I think probably about, I don't know what you would say, Brooks, maybe about 18 months in, I think we finally got a lot of those things ironed out. I think that sounds about right. Uh, I, I also want to say that, that the JMU libraries played an integral role in helping us develop these processes um, because we're both, uh, we're both coming at this from uh, the perspective of not being um, computer scientists or uh, not being a specialist in data science. Um, 
it's something that I think we we have some some investment in and some interest in, but this is not our training. I'm I'm trained as as a, a literature scholar, and so we really needed to rely on uh, the expertise of important partners in in this process. Um, and so in the JMU libraries, Kevin Haig helped to develop a sort of data entry sheets that, that were almost self-correcting. So we didn't have to do a lot of, of management of that, of that labor. Um, Yasmin Shorish was advised us on how to make sure that we could uh, preserve the data long-term. Um, and then we had a partner at the um, Center for Open Science, which is based in Charlottesville, that, who also helped us sort of set up our, uh, a repository for all of this, this data. So it's, it's just gonna be um, available. Uh, our goal is in perpetuity uh, so that, you know, no matter how the internet changes over time, uh, scholars will still have access to all the work that we've done. Talking about sort of the, the level of collaboration necessary for this project, can you guys talk a little bit about the nuances involved in working with so many different people across so many different places to make this digital project that might be a little bit out of uh, your wheelhouse in certain areas? Well, I, I will say part of my uh, philosophy uh, here, and, and Ed can can add to this, I think, is one of the things that we determined at the very beginning was that neither of us were going to become an expert in every every aspect of this project, and that we really needed, um, as I said, to rely on the expertise of other people. Uh, there are different approaches to digital humanities, um, some that kind of insist on um, the the scholar in the humanities being um, also a coder. Uh, I, I felt like, uh, I, I don't want to say that, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but I did feel like um, I, I was never going to be uh, the kind of coder for which, you know, who, who could do this easily and who could do it effectively. And it was much more important to me that we find partners who understood the project and, and could and could bring their expertise to um, what we wanted to do. So um, we worked with a, a data visualization specialist, um, Ricky Holtz, who developed our data visualization tool, um, which was a long process. And he was a specialist and the, this data was so complex, it was difficult for him to do this. Um, and it took a while. So um, part of it is, uh, uh, for me, the philosophy is understanding what you do know and understanding what you don't know and making sure you can find other people um, who can who can be part of the team? Who can fill in those gaps um, and 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 contribute to the overall project? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think um, part of this team really built up organically. So, uh, Brooks mentioned uh, Ricky Holtz, who was a former graduate student instructor of mine at at UC Berkeley, and so he was teaching with me on media theory, and I knew that he did all kinds of visualization, computer sciencey stuff. Um, that that really blew over my head. Um, I knew that he was really good at it, and I um, I think you know looking around you to see who you know who is knowledgeable, and and he you know took up the challenge. He did a, a bunch of different projects before our project, and what was really great um, was the conversations that we would have with him. So he would translate you know the technical things to us, and then we would you know of course translate the um, you know, where we were coming from as researchers. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of um, cr 
cross-fertilization in terms of learning. Um, I think now I understand the importance of time zones when it comes to um, doing spreadsheets. <laughs> so he helped, we found all these bugs and we, and we worked together to find them. And so I think going into it, you know, like Brooke said, you know, maybe I don't know about coding, but I'm, you know, open to learning and then vice versa. So I think it was a really, I think our team, we came together with a, with a big open mind wanting to learn, um, but then also kind of taking a step back and saying, you know what you're doing, um, but I'll, I'll watch you and learn from you. Yeah, some of it was really getting out of the way when, uh, when other, other folks came in with expertise and, reala and realizing, okay, this is something that we can accomplish and this is something that we can't accomplish uh, based on the kind of data structure that we had. Um, just, uh, and, and I think for us who use digital humanities tools and who are on the, you know, on the web all the time, uh, sometimes you just don't realize what's, what all is happening behind the scenes. So uh, when we were talking to, to Ricky about putting together a map, what's called a choropleth, um, so a heat map. Uh, one of the one of the things that we, you know, that we were contending with was the idea that for you know a magazine like, let's say the the Saturday Evening Post, which run, ran virtually the entire time of, uh, that we we're considering in the project, that not only would the tool have to represent every single iteration of the Saturday Evening Post, a weekly magazine over fifty years at one time, right? All of it on the, on the page at once. It would also have to represent all of these additional numbers geographically and be ready to represent all these additional geographical numbers at any time. And so for us thinking about this, this project, oh, uh, understanding the, both the limitations of, of the technology and you know, what, what, what we could do um, or what we could do effectively with you know, a small team um, and not, you know, we're not obviously a massive um, uh, news organization or something, right? But what we could do with a small team, um, it was really uh, was really helpful in terms of understanding, um, you know, the, the limitations, but also the goals, right? We could restructure the goals a little bit around what we knew our limitations were gonna be. Um, and we also knew that one of, the, one of the end goals was not just the visualization tool, which is really terrific, um, but also having the data um, stable and accessible so that should we want to uh, revisit the visualization tool down down the road in five or ten years when new technologies are available we have all of the raw data that we need to make that happen so covid definitely affected a lot of projects <laughs> in the last year um has has it affected your launching process at all i know it was towards the tail end of your project uh, do you want to take this one Sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, we were already working in this sort of virtual remote situation from the get-go. Um, I think, unfortunately, we were going to launch right when COVID hit. So we, we were all ready, you know, we had, you know, things, you know, the ducks in a row to have our launch event um, in March, um, and then, then we had to postpone. And so um, part of that was a silver lining because we could um, do some tweaking and adding some titles over um, the summer. Um, but then we ultimately had our, our launch event um, in um, the, the fall, which was great, but it, you know, it was virtual. And so, so that, that was the kind of the biggest, you know, we were, we were really excited to have everybody come together, you know, on campus to, 
to look at, you know, our site and then actually have some physical magazines there. Um, so I think that was the, the biggest impact from COVID. One thing I would add to that, right, is that we, it, it, it was a, in some ways it actually worked in our favor, weirdly, um, in part because we were going to launch in March. Um, and it was, we were going to be cutting it very close. Yeah. Um, it was going to be difficult to do all the quality control that we wanted to do, all of the testing of, uh, because what we needed to do was test every title that was in our, in our um, database to, to see if there were any entry errors that, that stuck out. Um, Ed and I did a lot of the entry for um, the individual magazines and one of the things that that we found is that, that that process didn't have quality control, right? We 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 didn't have built-in um, structures like we did for the geographical data, which was mostly done by students. Um, and so, you know, human error crept in, and uh, we had issues where a number got a digit got dropped, or a digit got added, or you know, the wrong digit got entered. And the way to fix that was really to kind of review the the actual um, visualizations to see what stood out as potentially problematic or, or potentially different. So uh, we took the extra time that, that we got from COVID um, in the summer to do a lot of that review um, and to do it really thoroughly as well as add some of the, the titles like, like Ed was saying. Um, and I would also say that while we were both a little disappointed that we couldn't have an in-person um, launch event. One of the advantages of doing the, the digital launch event is that we had a really great turnout uh, from across the country. We had a number of international uh, uh, folks, uh, folks from international destinations um, tuning in um, and asking questions. And I think it gave us a little bit more of an opportunity to, to promote the project um, on a broader scale than if we had had the launch as originally planned um, in Carrier Library at JMU. So that was, uh, again, I think we, we missed out on the kind of celebratory uh, in-person thing, but, um, but we, we were happy to, to see so many friends from around the country who would not have been able to make um, the in-person event uh, join us, including many members of our advisory board which was another uh, group that we relied on for expertise and, and, um, and advice in, throughout the process. Oh yeah, and to build on what Brooks was just saying, um, we have a circulation forum on our uh, project site and having that virtual meeting uh, got folks excited and wanting to contribute to that. So not only did it um, bring attention to the work that some of our colleagues have already written. So, you know, part of this is, you know, we, we have all the visualization tools there. We want to show how all the bells and whistles can be used. Um, and so we'll have more of those great forum posts coming out soon. And I, I think, like Brooke said, that's the silver lining of, of having that digital launch event. So a nice silver lining for COVID. What advice would you give up and coming scholars thinking about branching out into new projects, maybe even digital projects? Ed, go for it. Sure, that's a really great question. Um, I think part of it is, well, there, well the, the first thing that comes to mind is if you're budgeting a certain amount of time 
maybe add half the amount extra. Because <laughs> um, I think we academics are really good about, you know, coming up with big ideas. And then sometimes the timeline will be longer than what we expect. So I would um, definitely um, have realistic expectations about how long things will take, um, especially when you're getting into archival work. Um, and then one thing I would say is, is definitely getting to know you know, the allies that, that can help you. So in the library, so, um, you know, the JMU library was, was pivotal in, in helping us, um, you know, working through, you know, the different options, everything from how to, you know, structure the data to how do we actually save this data and then how do we um, ultimately launch it. So coming up with something, you know, a DOI, so there's a stable address where people can, can cite it and find it. So I think it's really finding the experts um, and talking with them early. Um, I wish I could give them coffee more so than I have um, to reward them and thank them for their time. So I think the, those two pieces of advice would be, um, be realistic and mindful that time is probably gonna go a little bit longer um, and then find all the allies um, on your campus and um, you know, in your, your scholarly and technical networks. I think I'd agree with those two, absolutely. Um, finding allies that, that can um, help you understand your own work, um, I think uh, was, was really useful. Um, and the time and labor I, I, I is, is also a really big, a really big issue. I, I would say um, we, when we applied for the grant um, at the National Endowment for the Humanities, um, part of our idea was we thought, well, you know, maybe if we try to do this a little bit more cheaply than um, we, we would think that, you know, that might make us more likely to get the grant. Uh, or if we had a quicker timeline, that would make us more likely to, to get the grant. And when we talked to folks there before submitting the application, they, they discouraged that, actually. They said, be realistic and you know, think really um, ambitiously about what you want to do. Um, don't assume that we're going to look more favorably on a grant that's a little bit cheaper um, just because, you know, you, you seem like you're cutting corners because when you cut corners, you're actually creating more work for yourself on, in the long run. And that was very true. Um, and so those kinds of projects, right, researching grants, talking to grant officers, um, these are projects, these digital projects like this, they require a lot of time and labor and you don't want to um, ask uh, for uncompensated labor, especially from students. Um, and so you want to find a way, whether it's through credit or, or through um, actual pay, which we were able to do at JMU, um, to, to compensate students for, for labor. And, and that, that, that's another big component is think about building out a team um, that is probably bigger than you initially imagine. Um, that has different components, people who are specialists, people who can do some of the, the kind of detail work. Um, all, all of that is really key um, to making a project like this a success. We'll go ahead and end on a fun note. Can you guys tell me what the most surprising bit of data that you found was, your most surprising discovery? Ooh, that's a good one. Ed, do you have a thought initially? Oh, that, that, that is a very good one. This is a stumper. <laughs> I, I just I just keep uh, having visions of spreadsheets, like scrolling through. You know, like oh man. I, I have one. Okay, I, go for it. 
Um, so for me, I think one of the most surprising things diving into, you know, volumes and volumes and volumes of reports and data over the 50 plus years that, that we were looking at, um, I think it's just a number of titles. Um, this isn't particular data, but I think like I was blown away by titles I've never heard of. Um, I was also blown away by, um, you know, there were some international editions for certain magazines. Um, there was circulation in parts of the world that I wouldn't have anticipated. So for me, because I'm, I'm, I work in the, you know, media and advertising history, um, there's always this discussion of, well, you know, in the 1980s, you know, when we had cable TV, there was an explosion of, you know, all these niche forms of, of media. And I would say, well, actually, um, I would look a little bit earlier, you know, all of the, there were lots of experiments over time. We can see different titles like cropping up for like one report or two reports or a couple years. And so I would say that um, for me, the most surprising thing is, um, and I knew periodical, you know, history was very rich, um, but I think what really struck me and surprised me throughout this was, oh, wow, there's this title and this time. And um, it, it basically just makes me want to research magazines even more. Um, and um, some of these are incredibly, some of these magazines are incredibly rare. Um, and so I find myself sleuthing for them on eBay or in libraries. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, I don't find them, but sometimes I do. And I think that would be the biggest thing that that's uh, surprised me through all of the, from a, from a meta standpoint, from the, from the data. So I have a, an actual data uh, surprise that, um, that was astonishing for me um, really throughout most of the titles that we looked at. And, and that surprise is the state of Nevada. Um, when we first started working on some of this information, um, I started noticing some really weird elements uh, around the state of Nevada, particularly in, in the first half of the 20th century, really through the, the kind of 1940s. Um, because this is when Nevada is a very sparsely populated state. I mean, it's before Vegas becomes a real destination. Um, there's not a whole, I mean, it's still relatively sparsely populated except for places like Vegas. Um, but one of the things that we noticed when we started um, correlating the number of magazines sold in a particular state uh, to population is that in some cases, uh, Nevada, there would be one issue of a magazine for every 20 people in, in Nevada, or even, even, even more than one for every 20 people, which if you think about reach and you think about magazines being passed along, sometimes magazines are the same issue of a magazine's read by, you know, five to 10 people. Um, it, it just seems that in some places, and for some reason, Nevada is, is one of those places. Um, maybe because it's out west, maybe because it was mostly, you know, working class men, you know, who didn't have a whole lot going on, uh, were consuming, especially pulp magazines, but almost every kind of magazine at, at a rate that is um, really pretty surprising when you consider other parts of, um, of the country. And so that to me was one of the really fascinating um, you know, 
bits of data that we encountered was, and it caused me to really think about, you know, what does this say about magazine distribution or the reading habits um, of, of people in different places? Uh, we also saw some of this in geographical data where we'd usually see the South as a particular, as, as not as strong um, as other, the sort of Southeast is not as strong a region in terms of the number of readers. But then when we turned our attention um, to uh, African-American magazines like Ebony or Jet, uh, that, those were magazines that had a really, really strong readership in the South. Uh, and so it's some of those geographical stories that uh, strike me as particularly fascinating uh, uh, aspects of, of the data that we uncovered that, that run maybe a little bit counter uh, to our uh, assumptions about where magazines were read and who was reading them. Well, great. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thank you, Megan. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for this episode of Conversations at the Cohen Center. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at JMU Cohen Center. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at cohencenter at jmu.edu. Both our intro and outro music come from the Stock Library available at anchor.fm.